join our study in this fourth gospel together today, and we'll seek to finish this chapter next week uh, when we get together. As you're turning there, I just want to thank those of you that have participated also in um, getting the gospel to Hannah's home here in town. I knew the founder, um, know the founder of Hannah's home, um, and Paul Beersford, and he with other churches in the community to establish that home so unwed moms could get the gospel. And, and uh, so thank you for helping that. And we seek to um, do all of these things in Jesus' name and, um, and encourage you as you um, participate in that endeavor to always make sure that whatever we do in the community whatever cup of cold water we hand out, we do so in the Lord's name. Amen? Um, other than that, it's just nothing but what we know historically in the early part of the 20th century as a social gospel. Uh, doing good works in the community is good, but it's not spiritually qualitatively good unless it's attached to the good news of Jesus Christ. So let's continue to to minister in that way and thank you for doing that and thank you for uh, spurring that on and, and thank you for all of the maturity matters who have uh, provided all of our hymns I don't know whether it's going to be weeks or months but starting last week for the 75th uh, all of those hymns that were sung last week and today were chosen by our maturity matters so none feel left out we're going to make sure how many more weeks, Pastor Steve? How many hymns were... That's Pastor Mike. Pastor Mike. We'll figure it out. Uh, but thank you. And uh, we appreciate that very, very much. And none of you will be left behind, nor your hymn selections. All right, John chapter 8. When we were together here last time. Remember, we're towards the end of the week of the Feast of Tabernacles. This is about a half year before Jesus um, goes to the cross for us. And he's really in a face-to-face -face debate with religious unbelief, and he's confronting their own sin and their own belief. And he does so here uh, in the remainder of this chapter by just identifying for them what belief is, what saving faith is, and how it's played out in the believer's life. So that's simply the proposition. We're looking at three virtues of genuine saving faith that the Lord Jesus Christ tells unbelieving people so that they can do their own compare and contrast with their own unbelief. If you remember last time we were together, we talked about the test of fatherhood, the paternity test. Jesus says to the unbelief, you are of your father, the devil, and the lusts, the desires of your father, you are doing. That's your bent Right? Um, we're going to find out, uh, and we have found out already, that the Lord Jesus identifies himself with his Father, and he comes to speak his will and do his will. And certainly, as we understand him in salvation, our Father. We are made one with Christ's Father. So the test of fatherhood. 
This week we're going to look at uh, the test of the relevance of God's word in our life. The use of God's word in our life. And next week we're going to look at test number three, um, God's works. So fatherhood, the word of God, and then the works of God's children. But for today, we're going to spend the whole time examining what's mentioned here a lot in these short verses, um, the mention of the truth of the word of God. So I think it'd be good for us probably just to take a moment uh, to read this passage again, to uh, familiarize our minds and our hearts with it. And so let's begin here in verse 31, and we'll read through verse 59. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed on him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. I would encourage you as you were reading through this, if you believe in marking up your Bibles or highlighting in your device, every time you see uh, the word truth, every time you um, see the uh, Bible referenced as the word, and any time you see a verb like speaking or hearing, Underline it, highlight it. These are all references to God's word in Jesus Christ and then revealed to man and our responsibility to it uh, as we live it out as a test of our own uh, discipleship. But nonetheless, they answered in verse 33, we are Abraham's descendants and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it? that you say you will become free. And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever and the son does not remain forever. So does the son makes you free. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you still seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak the things which I have seen with my father and therefore you also do with the things which you have heard from your father. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. We'll look at that next week. That's the, really the third test of discipleship, doing the deeds of saving faith. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me, and a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God, and this Abraham did not do, you are doing the deeds of your father. They said to him, we are not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and have come from God, for I have not even come of my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I'm saying? It, it is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? He asks that question because they can't. If I speak the truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears the words of God. 
For this reason, you do not hear him because you are not of God. The Jews answered and said to him, do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and, and, you, and you dishonor me. But I do not seek my glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, they will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, and the prophets also, and you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste of death. Surely you are not greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? Jesus said, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. If my father who glorifies me it is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. And you have not come to know Him, but I know Him. And if I say that I do not know Him, I will be a liar just like you, but I do know Him and keep His word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So let's discuss and preach and teach here the rest of the time on this test of discipleship, our relationship and responsibility to the word of God, and then we'll dismiss. The references to God's word are plenty in this passage. We just read that. The first is found earliest in verse 31, where Jesus says, if you continue in my word, then immediately his word is made synonymous with truth in verse 32. The truth will set you free. This is the saving knowledge of the word of God. Six other times in this passage, the word truth is used. All seven times this word truth is used, it's mentioned by Jesus himself. Clearly he's conveying a truism to the religious unbelief around him that he's not only speaking of the truth, but he is the truth. He is the very narration of God himself. And that doesn't surprise us because of what John wrote in John 1.14, does it? And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of two things, full of grace and what? Truth. All of chapter 8 has really been the most vivid illustration of Jesus being grace and truth when you consider the grace offered the woman caught in adultery and also how Jesus presents himself as the truth of God enfleshed for all unbelief to examine. The truth, indeed, Christ himself is not in unbelief. And what are the indicators of this reality? They're just simply not free men. Free from what? Jewish unbelief would have immediately thought, who are we slaves to? We're slaves to nobody. Yet they would have known their own history. They had been, right, 
to the Egyptians, to the Syrians, to the Assyrians, to the Babylonians, to the Persians, to Greece, and now even they exist in domination, under the domination of the Roman Empire. They knew political slavery. They didn't believe Roman domination was slavery to them, but they were still enslaved to that culture. So what was Jesus really speaking of here? He continues to qualify what kind of slavery he's speaking of in verse 34. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. This word commits is also used a lot in John's first letter of three at the end of the New Testament. Okay? It's speaking to a lifestyle of sin. Someone who can't help themselves but to think about and to live sin. We know what's already been happening with the religious leaders through the book of John. We know John's significant sub-theme as he speaks of the desire of the religious ones to seize, arrest, imprison, and even kill Jesus unlawfully. So Jesus is simply peeling away at the religious motives of their hearts. They claim Abraham as their father. They claim God as their father, yet their lifestyles yield the righteousness of neither. The motif of sin of the religious leaders described by John as murderous, hateful, and unlawful simply describes a way of life for them. In addition to these specifics mentioned throughout the book of John by Jesus, he also says within our passage, the lusts or the desires of your father you continue to do. They just have a habit to have God on their lips, but sinful patterns in their hearts. Kind of let that sit and bake for a little bit as a faithful group of attenders to worship at Grace Church. Can it be the habit even today of religious people to have God always on their lips and yet unjudged sinful patterns in their hearts? My dad always taught me when I was a kid, you know, what you are is really what you are in the dark. When nobody else is around, and you're all to yourself, what are you in your mind and in your heart? What do you muse about? What do you wish to do? That really identifies whose father you are and and whether you've embraced the word indeed or not. He says again in verse 34, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. But again, John's good at this grammar in his New Testament writings. It's hard to imagine, friends, but any unconverted man or woman can't help themselves but be dominated by their sin. To be sure, common grace, that grace we can live because we're made in the image of God, can do and say some really quality things, but the habits of the heart remain unbroken. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God always knows the heart. For those of you who are saved, this is why when you fall back into a pattern of sin, you feel miserable. When the word of God, the truth of God that set you free from sin, you are made free from sin. You're unshackled 
And the bonds of sin don't feel natural and they don't even feel comfortable anymore. When I fell into patterns of sin as a young man, and I would speak to my, my father and my mom about that, they would say, well, how do you feel right now? And I said, I feel miserable right now. And they said, what? Good. <laughs> good. I was like, what do you mean, good? They said, we would be heartbroken if you weren't feeling miserable about your sin. The fact that you feel miserable about your sin is probably proof that you may be born again. The witness of the Holy Spirit within testifies that you're a child of the truth by his mere conviction of your sin. My grandfather always told me, my mom's dad, that there's really no such thing as a happy backslider, and we all know that, don't we? When our friends and relatives say, I know Jesus and he knows me, he doesn't judge me according to my little sins. He knows I'm generally a good person. Well, let God be true and every man a liar. Unbroken patterns of sin lead a man to severe conviction if they're saved and misery. And they just, they just can't they just can't enslave a free man to slavery again. We know Hebrews 12. There the writer of Hebrews states that those believing, to those believing Jews whom the Lord loves, he what? He chastens when they sin. We know that Paul writes in Galatians 6, 1 and 2, it is possible for a brother to be overtaken in a fault. We know what to do. When that happens as well, we who are spiritual can call that brother alongside, call them back to fellowship, and help them back to fellowship. And verse 2 tells us when we do that, we're actually fulfilling the law of Christ. We know from 1 John chapter 2 that it's the believer's desire to have pure fellowship with Jesus that is appearing. But it's also possible for a believer to now be governed by the Spirit when Jesus appears. It can be the believer's experience to sin, but it's not our propensity to do so anymore. Our old man has been put to death for the believer, but for the unbeliever, the desires of their father, the devil, they continue to do. Remember verse 34? Jesus wipes away the difference between Jew and Gentile and says everyone who commits sin, everyone living the propensity to sin and live a life that way is a slave to sin at the same time. Galatians, Romans 6.16 teaches that. Romans 11.32, 2 Peter 2.19. There is a person that cannot break the sinful patterns in their life. And that's a person that has not understood the truth of Jesus Christ. And therefore, they remain slaves. Using the slave metaphor, Jesus is simply saying, um, I believe it was uh, D.A. Carson who said this, true freedom is not the liberty to do anything we please, but the liberty to do what we ought. 
And it is genuine liberty because doing what we ought pleases us. Do you know the truth? Is the truth sets you free? Let's remember the nature of the fullness of the word of God is Jesus. He's the way, the truth, and the life. He even says in verse 36, so if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. Yes, the Bible is the truth of God, as read and seen in Christ, but when you truly understand Jesus, he sets you free from the bondage of sin and death. As Jesus said in John 11, I also am the resurrection and the life, who that believes in me, though he were dead spiritually, yet will he know life, yet shall he live. So clearly God's word is truth, and the truth does set us free. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God, but the Bible is the divinely inspired and preserved truth of God in Christ. The spirit of God uses the word of God to lead us to the logos of God, but it is God who saves in Christ. If we thought the Bible could save, wouldn't we worship it and not the God of the Bible? Certainly the Bible is there to be the cleansing agent of God for our souls towards Christ's likeness after we're born again. And certifiably it is to be a great treasure and pleasure in our lives, but the Son who is the truth has set us free in Jesus alone. And once free, we grow. I just want to concentrate here on a few other active aspects of God's word in our lives that are true tests of whether we're a disciple or not. Let me give you those in order here as we'll study them in the passage this morning. If you're a true disciple of Jesus Christ and you have been born again and you have a relationship with the living word Jesus Christ and the written preserved word, the Bible, you will be speaking that word. You will be speaking that word. You will be hearing that word. And you will be keeping that word. Speaking, hearing, keeping. Let's rifle through these here this morning as we continue. Jesus speaks the word. We saw that as we read verses 38, 45, and 46. He speaks the word given to him from his father. Speaking the truth was obviously a way of life for Christ. What he had heard from the Father, he has faithfully spoken and lived. His speaking led to the convicting and saving of many and confirmed the unbelief of others. In verse 46, if we reread that together, Jesus said, which of you convicts me of sin? If I speak truth, why do you not believe me? Jesus asks a question for which the religious unbelief had no answer. Then Jesus said, if I speak the truth, how come you're not believing what I'm saying? In other words, I'm the living, true, innocent narration of God who speaks the convicting word of God. I've spoken against your sin of unbelief, violence, lying, unlawful arrest, and murder of myself. 
Why aren't you hearing me? I've asked you to convict me, and you go silent. Because you find no fault in me. So that's why you have to transfer blame by calling me son of a harlot. You call me an unclean one, a Samaritan, and you even tell me that I'm demon-possessed. You speak these things, I've asked you to convict me, and you say nothing. But I have spoken to you the truth. I've spoken to you the truth about yourselves. Why aren't you hearing? Unbelief can't hear. We can easily say that a clear aspect of speaking the word is sharing the gospel as Jesus did here. Isn't that what he's doing? No one can be saved until their first what? Find themselves lost. <laughs> right? This is a very, very simple message and, a, and really a, a way of teaching us as we build our redemptive relationships with people who need Christ. You can't speak of Christ and faith without speaking of sin, and you can't speak of sin without speaking of faith. None of you in this room were born again because you just simply heard that you needed to believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You were only saved because you were told that your sin had separated you from a holy God. And only the Lord Jesus Christ could reconcile you unto God to bring you back into friendly accord with your creator. So Jesus really here in speaking the word is not only being um, authentic with his father in relationship to the living out of the will of the father for him, he's actually, um, he's actually living for his own great commission purpose. Everywhere the Lord Jesus went, he had the burden of lost souls on his heart. He could never escape that. That's who he was. You think of the patience that he has with religious unbelief throughout the whole book of John. It's actually quite amazing, isn't it? One attribute of God that's rarely mentioned in this gospel that is often seen is the mercy of God. giving murderous unbelief another opportunity, yet another opportunity, yet another opportunity to bother knee in repentance. And, and yet every time they give an opportunity, their, their necks grow more stiff and their hearts more cold. Can I ask you a question? Since this is certainly uh, the mission of Jesus is to speak the gospel, which includes both repentance and faith. Uh, and I don't need a raised hand. I just, in your own mind, and, and I'm not seeking to guilt trip you. But remember, a test of discipleship is, is, um, is, is, is easily seen here. And one component of that is Jesus, who is the word, speaking the will of his Father. And, and this in gospel relationships, and if we're 
believers and we're pursuing Christ's likeness and we're seeking to live the same mission that he's on, wouldn't it be fair, wouldn't it be fair for us to, uh, to ask ourselves the question, when's the last time I've spoken the gospel to anyone? Like all of it. Praise God for the opportunity we have to build redemptive relationships with unbelief. Praise the Lord for those opportunities to have friends who don't know Jesus. And some of them, all of them have become quite dear to us as true friends. But I would just ask you to pray that God would give you wisdom as that relationship as a friend goes, grows deeper Make sure your understanding of your obligation to speak the gospel to them grows as equally deep. Okay. Jesus is very clear here in obeying, speaking this aspect of the will of his Father. Well, practically for us, we want to follow. I know it's a worship context in Colossians chapter 3. Let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. We enjoy that every time we're together on a Sunday morning. Did you know that? Uh, that, uh, that is a worship context. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. What we enjoy corporately, we can also enjoy privately, right? And we should. This is a test of discipleship, our, our relationship with this great treasure, this great pleasure, this divinely given and preserved word, right? It ought to be a, a growing relationship, a growing appreciation, a more valued treasure today than it was yesterday. There's lots of practical ways in which we can train our families who profess Christ to embrace the word and allow its value in our lives to increase. Uh, when I was growing up from time to time, uh, I would leave um, a message on my kids' mirrors in soap. Right? Little Bible verse. You could leave a note on their pillow for when they go to bed at night. You can leave a post-it note on the steering wheel of your wife's car with the treasured scripture passage. You can certainly text the Bible now, can't you? And many of you do, praise God for that. When we say that we're governed by the Spirit and we're walking according to the will of God, certainly that must include a conveyance of that word a speaking of that word, not only in mission, but also in lifestyle. Kind of see that. Kind of, you certainly see that in Deuteronomy chapter 6. We understand it in Joshua chapter 1 and verse 8 from the meditation of God's word. This book of the law shall not depart out of your what? Out of your speaking out of your speaking, out of your mouth. So thinking always leads to speaking. So I ask you a second question. Not only who's the pers last person you have uh, clearly given the gospel to, but 
Is this the lifestyle you have with the word of God? Is it a, is it a natural way of life for you? To speak it, to convey it in these, in these practical ways. We do so in our families. We do so with our disciplees. We do so in our classrooms. We do so in our pulpits, but we ought to do so each day of our existence. John teaches us here that it should be very easy to convey the word by way of communication. It should be easy and often. Even within our text, there's this constant volley, this refrain of the word of God from the Father to the Son, the Son to His children, His children to each other, and then to the world that needs Jesus. The speaking of the word is just a natural part of a spirit-filled life. And while we're speaking it, we should also be involved with hearing it. Remember the second, this test of the word of God in our life as true disciples, we speak it, but we also hear. It is to be heard. It is to be attended to. And who modeled this for us? I think Jesus did, right? In the passage we've already read, verse 40. And verse 47, Jesus said, the truth which I heard from God. And he who is of God hears the words of God. Unbelief cannot hear because they're who their father is. We saw that in verse 43 and verse 44. This is why they cannot understand what Jesus says. If you cannot hear, you cannot understand. The word hear is the same root throughout all of this text, every time you see it used. It means to hear with discernment. This is how they would have heard it. <laughs> no pun intended, right? At this particular time in history, the language as we know it in this text, they would have heard the word here used to describe something or someone sitting on a jury in a court of law, examining a case. When a jury's dismissed, you've been on jury duty, right? You go to deliberate. And what do you deliberate? Deliberate all the facts, both sides. And you have to come up with a verdict. And it can't be guilty or innocent unless it's guilty or innocent without a reasonable doubt on either side. So how long does it take to deliberate? I've been on a jury um, a whole lot longer than I ever wanted to because we kept coming one vote shy of conviction. And you know what? I was that vote. That was a bummer time because I kept over in my head, the judge exhorting us, you must come to a conviction beyond any reasonable doubt. The dude was guilty. I knew it. But there was reasonable doubt. What are the facts? Just the facts, please. I'm not going to tell you what ended up happening in that, in that situation. That's not the point. It was arduous. It was fine-tooth comb stuff. And when you came to a vote again, and it was still not unanimous to convict, 
you had to take another break and go get a sandwich or go get a coffee or maybe even come back the next day. That's the idea. Had you heard everything thoroughly enough to be able to understand it and move forward with conviction. Every time you see a form of the word here in this text, that's what it's meaning. Jesus had thoroughly heard the message from his father and as he speaks his word, those who are truly his disciples, they hear it with discernment. And they're eager to live it the right way. There's not only the speaking, the hearing, but there's the keeping of God's word if you're a true disciple. Verse 51, Jesus again models this for us. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And if you move down to verse 52, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste of death. And he had already heard from his father and he was speaking that which he had heard from his father. And then there's a keeping. There's a, there's a guarding here. One who's truly been born again, one who has been set free from facing eternity without Christ, keeps, and that's the word here, guards the word of God. Verse 51 here, there's, there's what we call in the Greek language a double negative. If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. So he's heard it spoken it's been spoken to him he's heard it he's applied it to his life and now there is a consistency of living there's a consistency of living and we only know that because they've been guarding that which's been spoken to them which they truly understood and discerned and now they're living it people who do this are proving themselves to be born again that's what Jesus is saying Someone who faithfully lives the word will never, ever, ever see death. Now they're hearing that as physical death, but we know that Jesus is conveying the truths about spiritual death. The soul that sins, it will die, physically and spiritually. But the, the, the soul that hears the speaking in an understandable way and, and is born again, they'll, they'll keep, they'll guard, they'll live this truth. John wrote in 1 John chapter 2, the same author, a little bit later on, verses 3 through 5, by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments, John says, is a liar and the truth isn't in him, but whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been matured. It's been perfected. We're enabled to keep the word of God by our Savior who did the same. Verse 55 that we read. Jesus speaks of his relationship with the Father. I know him. And if I say that I do not know him, I'll be a liar like you, but I do know him and I keep his word. He perfectly lived that which we progressively guard and live. 
A genuine understanding of the Father always leads to a desire to guard his word. And when souls speak against it, it cuts deeply into our hearts, doesn't it? When the word of God is doubted, it offends us. When professing believers don't live it, it grieves us. And the word is, if the word is ever taught improperly, it strikes our hearts with the very fear of God himself. We guard the word by living the word. This is what true disciples do. For Jesus, one can only abide in his word when making it the rule and practice of their life. We often say here at Grace, the Bible is our sole rule for faith and practice. If you remain in the word, it's simple. If you abide in the word, you are a true disciple of Jesus. And you will continue on guarding it and faithfully speaking it and hearing it. Test number two. Who's your father spiritually? And what's your relationship with the word of God? It's Memorial Day and I read a little story recently I thought I'd finish with today because I admired this little boy's tenacity. And I thought, wow, if we could just do spiritually what this boy did practically, we might uh, really understand the energy of how Jesus teaches this particular virtue of discipleship. In May of 1861, nine-year-old John Lincoln, or as was known Johnny Clem, ran away from his home in Newark, Ohio to join the Union Army, but found the Army was not interested in signing a nine-year-old boy. When the commander of the 3rd Ohio Regiment told him they weren't enlisting infants, and he turned him down. Clem tried again, the 22nd Michigan Regiment next, and its commander told him the same thing. Determined, Clem tagged after the regiment, acted out the role of a drummer boy, and was allowed to remain. Though still not regularly enrolled, he performed camp duties and received a soldier's pay of $13 a month, not from the government, but this was a sum collected and donated by the soldiers in the regiment. The next April at Shiloh, Clem's drum was smashed by an artillery round and he became minor, became minor news. And he was actually named at that point, Johnny Shiloh, the smallest drummer. A year later at the Battle of Chickamauga, he rode an artillery kerosene to the front and wielded a musket that they had actually trimmed and made to his size. In one of the Union retreats, a Confederate officer ran after the cannon Clem rode with and yelled, surrender, you condemned little Yankee. And Johnny shot him dead. <laughs> this won for him a national attention and the name Drummer Boy of Chickamauga. Clem stayed with the Army through the war, served as a courier, and was wounded twice. Between Shiloh and Chickamauga, he was regularly enrolled in the surface began receiving his own pay, and was soon after promoted to the rank of sergeant. He was only 12 years old. After the Civil War, he tried to enter West Point, but was turned down because he didn't have enough education. 
A personal appeal to President Ulysses S. Grant, his commanding general at Shiloh, won him a second lieutenant's appointment in the regular army on 18 December 1871. And in 1903, he attained the rank of colonel and served as assistant quartermaster general. He retired from the army as a major general in 1916, having served an astounding 55 years. General Clem died in San Antonio, Texas on May 13, 1937, exactly three months shy of his 86th birthday, and is buried in Arlington National Cemetery. I was just reading that because I love to read stuff like that around Memorial Day and Veterans Day, July 4th, and, and so forth. But I got to thinking, huh, how much energy a little nine-year-old can have to pursue a passion and pursue it for 55 years. It's powerful, isn't it? And then I think of the the, the supernatural ability God gives a born-again soul to pursue these virtues of what it is to be a true disciple. How much more, right, folks? Like, how much more is this the nature of this guttural desire for us to pledge allegiance to, if you will, the will of God in Christ Jesus, and specifically this morning in the relationship to his word? As we speak it and hear it, speak spoken as we hear it as we hear it and as we're expected to guard it let's pray together father in heaven we love you we we thank you for a simple examination of the second test of what it means to be a true disciple that jesus gives to unbelievers as a clear distinction clear demarcation between belief and unbelief i I pray those who are born again here this morning would, would be good speakers of the word, both in gospel content and in the truth of the word among those who believe. I pray, Lord, that we would be good discerners, good hearers of the word. And I pray that we would be known as guardians of the word. with divine passion similar to our divine model, the Lord Jesus Christ, as he speaks of his relationship as the word of God to the truth of God that was given to him. In his precious name,